So um, today we've got to Nehemiah 13, which means it's the very last in our Nehemiah series. Ah, oh, there you go. Now, before I say anything about it, we are going to read through the whole chapter. And I, I ummed and ahed about this because I thought it's quite a long chapter. But I thought for two reasons. One, as we go through it, I think it's really helpful to get some of the drama of it. It's quite a dramatic um, kind of finale in one sense. But secondly, because it does talk in the New Testament, it talks about the public reading of scriptures as being a valuable part of our kind of communal worship. And so there's something, even just hearing the word of God read out loud together, that's, that's important as well. So don't worry, I'm not going to do the whole thing. I've asked these two lovely people to do it for us, and they're going to be amazing. So are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Let's go. Okay, Nehemiah 13. Eliashad the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense in the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashep had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shemariah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mattiah, the assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services." In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who live in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things? So that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city. Now you are stirring up more rout against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, 
Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men, pulled out their hair, and made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Judiah, son of Eliashab, the, king, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Hornite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, my God. Amen. Thank you so much. Well done. Brilliant. Great. Let me pray. Lord God, as we come to this uh, final and, and pretty challenging, pretty harsh last chapter, I pray that you would speak into us what you would have us know from it, Lord. I pray that you would be with us, you'd challenge, challenge us appropriately, and, uh, and Lord, you'd be here by your spirit to kind of really just bring this thing to life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, we're in our last week of this book of Nehemiah, and, but in some ways it would have been lovely if it had finished last week. It would have been a, a lot more of a happier ending, I think. Uh, and then at the end, we kind of get this sting in this tale, this kind of harsh, kind of crazy uh, final chapter. If it had finished last week, it would have been worthy of a, a kind of Hollywood finish, really, a real proper happy ending. And the story would have gone like this. Uh, Nehemiah is a man who's got a comfortable life serving the king of Persia. He gives up the luxuries of this life. He gives up a very prestigious, a very fancy job in order to go back to his homeland, a small, ruined city about a th thousand miles away. And when he gets there, the city is in a really bad state of disrepair. And so he gathers a group of people to start, uh, to start with, to rebuild the city walls. But he doesn't just have a, he doesn't have a group of great builders to work with. He's got a, a kind of ragtag bunch of all sorts of people, perfume makers, jewelry makers, farmers, bakers, priests. None of them are expert builders, but he gets on and does it anyway. And as they're building, they start getting opposition. 
You get two people called Tobiah and Sambalat, and they represent groups of people that are coming up to attack uh, Nehemiah's work and the people of God. And at first, they just start mocking them. Look at you. You're trying to build a wall. If a fox jumps on that, it's all going to crash to the ground. And then they get more serious, and they threaten violence. And instead of shying away and saying, oh, we better stop this, Nehemiah says, okay then. And he tools up all the people, and, uh, and, and he says, if you want some, you come and have it. And uh, so he's brave, and he's bold. And in the end, they do manage to get the walls built. And it's quite an impressive feat, really. So it, it took them 52 days to get everything done. But this wall is not just some puny little wall. It's a serious wall, two and a half meters thick. It's over 12 meters tall. I was asking Paul how tall this building is, and it's probably a similar height to here. That's how big the walls are. It's a massive massive wall and so it's very impressive and, and um, the kind of perimeter wall was uh, 4.5 miles long and so you're talking about a substantial thing done with a bunch of perfume makers and jewelry makers it's very impressive so the, ma- the majority of time that actually he spends so he goes he, he wants to go and restore Jerusalem But the majority of time actually isn't building the wall. It's about rebuilding a broken community, the people of God, the people that will live in and around the walls. Chapter 8 to 10. We read chapter 8 last week, actually. In chapter 8 to 10, it's all about the people recommitting themselves to God. And Nehemiah and Ezra lead them into this. And so you have... Um, in chapter 10, a whole load of different commitments that the people of God, the congregation, if you want to call it that, the congregation commit to God. So in chapter 10, verse 39, they commit to proper worship. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. In other words, we're going to worship God in the correct way. In uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 37, they commit to tithing. Tithing is giving a tenth of everything you have to God. And they commit to tithing. It says, we promise to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces, for it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all our rural towns. Uh, And they also commit to uh, Uh, observing the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath was a day where they they didn't work, they didn't toil, they spent it uh, resting and thinking about the things of God. And they recommit themselves to doing that. It says, we also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. And then finally, they commit to godly marriage. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of other lands and not to let our sons marry their daughters. Now, you have to understand this. This is not a racism thing. This is not them saying, you know, anyone from every other nation is bad and we are good. This is about worship of God. In those days, if you lived in another nation, you were worshipping another God. And to to be in another nation was synonymous with worshipping another God. And that's what this is about. It's about worshipping the one true God. So in chapter 10, the people of God 
all the Jews together recommit every aspect of their life to God. Their worship, their money, their livelihoods, their family. Everything has been dedicated to God. Then we skip into chapter 11 and some people start moving back into Jerusalem. Up until that point, Jerusalem, unsurprisingly, has been a bit of a, a building site. It wasn't just the walls that had got ruined. The temple had been ruined, but that had got restored a little while ago. But also all the houses and, and kind of dwellings in the area had also got ruined. And so chapter 11 tells the story of them all starting to come back and live in Jerusalem. And so this city that had been desolate, that had been derelict, for some, you know, nearly a hundred years, suddenly is bursting to life. There's business, there's people living there, there's thriving, there's a hopeful situation. So it's an exciting chapter. And then you get to chapter 12, the dedication of the walls. In this chapter, there's a great celebration. Everyone's singing, everyone's dancing. It's like a carnival. They have loads and loads of fun. And Nehemiah gets two massive choirs together. And, uh, and sends them off around the walls to celebrate what, is, what was happening. And it wasn't just choirs. There was trumpeters and groups of trumpets going with them. And it says in, um, in chapter 12, verse 43, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. There was a real sense of fun, a real sense of enjoyment, a real sense of carnival in chapter 12. And then, at some point, Nehemiah returns to King Artaxerxes in Susa. If you remember back to chapter 2, Nehemiah says, can I go to the king? He says, I will, I will come back once my job is finished. And Nehemiah, being an honorable man and true to his words, he goes back. Wouldn't that have been the best time for this story to finish? Wouldn't that have been the happy ending? Off he goes. Well done, Nehemiah. Job well done. It reminds me of Nanny McPhee. Has anyone, this is the biblical version of Nanny McPhee. Has anyone seen Nanny McPhee? Do you know her little saying? She says, if you need me, but no longer want, but don't want me, I will be there. But if you want me, but no longer me, need me, I'll be gone. And that's what he does. He's needed, so he's there. He's not needed, and so he goes. That would have been our Hollywood ending. But he decides to carry the story on. Mm. We don't know how long Nehemiah was away. Probably a few years, because when he comes back, some of the, the kids growing up in that community, they can't speak the language anymore. They're speaking uh, the language of was it Adod or something? I can't remember where it was, but they're speaking a different language. And so it must have been at least five years, maybe a little bit more, who knows? And we don't know why he comes back. When he first went to Jerusalem, it was because he heard what had happened uh, and, and how bad the situation was. Maybe something similar had happened, but we don't know. But when he returns to Jerusalem, he discovers that the, the people have had a serious cultural relapse. And they've given up on all those commitments to God. They've stopped worshipping God appropriately. The people have stopped bringing their tithes and offerings to God. As a result, the Levites have stopped working in that area because they've had to go back to their fields because they lived off the tithes as part of what, uh, what, as their income. 
they had ob- stopped observing the Sabbath, and so they were working seven days a week, and, and uh, the markets were open seven days a week. And they began to marry people from other nations. When Nehemiah finds out, he's furious. He's fu- I mean, he's seriously furious, isn't he? He starts shouting at people. He goes up to someone. He takes all their belongings out of the place where they're leaving and dashes them around on the floor. He threatens people and says, if I see you again, I'm either going to chase you out or I'm going to arrest you. You're going to be in serious trouble. He takes one person, pulls them by the hair and throws them out of the city. He is seriously angry. It's, it's, a, it's a bad situation. Sometimes, we, you know, I just, just say as well, even God, you know, I, one of the things about this story is, um, is how angry Nehemiah gets. I'm going to look at that in a little while. But another aspect of it is how flippant and how fickle the people of God are. I mean, in the last chapter, they were giving everything to God. In the last chapter, they were saying, you know, my worship, my money, my, my family, my livelihood, it's all belonging to you. And then one chapter later, gone. There's nothing. The fickleness of humanity. Even God gets frustrated with them. In Isaiah 65, verse 2, he says, you know, why do you do this? Why do you just go away? No one is listening to my word anymore. Do you not remember all the things I've done for you? In one moment, you've just given it all up. What's going on? Maybe you listen to this story and you think, Nehemiah, man, he was, he was outrageous in his anger. I'll look at that in a moment, in a little while. Or maybe you look at it and think, man, how flippant, how fickle are the people of God. But I've got a question. Aren't we just as fickle as the people of God were then? I mean, think about it. Have you ever had a time when you've had a powerful encounter with God, you've had a city, I mean, you know God spoke them right into your heart. Maybe you were in a, a communal set, setting. Someone was preaching and you thought, wow, the power of God is on me. I know, I know what God said to me. I know what God's done in me. I've had an amazing revelation of the grace of God. And all you can think is, God, I give you everything I have. And in that moment, it was true. It was real. It was what you wanted to do. And then maybe a few weeks later, you're like, it doesn't feel as exciting as it was then. And suddenly you haven't got so much time to be thinking about the glory of God because there's other things to be thinking about. Have you ever had the situation where you've, you've, you've just been convicted that actually God has been so generous to you, why would you not want to be generous to him? Or you've suddenly realized, you know what, everything I have comes from him and I want to make sure that every resource he gives me, I'm going to give it back to the kingdom of God. Maybe you've been to a cap kind of um, fundraising event and you go in, this is what happens to me, I go into a cap fundraising event in the city and I'm like, Ali, we're not giving any money, we're just listening. But then <laughs> by the end, it's like, it's, 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 I need to give some money to this. I, because you hear something so incredible that you're like, I can't say no to this. And it's not a burden to you. It's a joy. It's like, yes, my money, I want to give it. I want to give it to the purposes of God. And then a month later, it's like, oh, it's the end of the month and we've got nothing left. And this has gone wrong and that's gone wrong. You're like, do I really? 
do I really? It's suddenly, it's not a joy anymore. It's a sacrifice. And you can see how easy it is, how fickle we can become. We can have that moment of, yes, everything. And then we're like, oh, really? It happens as well with, with, um, with uh, kind of Sabbath as well, I think. I'll talk a little bit more about Sabbath right near the end. Um, but Sabbath was all about committing a day to rest and being in the presence of God. And so often, you know, probably when I, I find, this is the one I find the hardest or the find the most challenging, I find that I often come to the end of myself. I've got no energy left. And someone says, you need to just go and spend some time with God. And I spend some time with him. And I think, why haven't I done this for so long? I need to do this. And I resolve I am gonna, I'm going to make sure that regularly I go and spend time in the presence of God. And then sure enough, things get busy. I don't have enough time. And I'm at my wit's end again. And, I'm, and someone goes, why don't you go and spend some time with God? And I'm like, oh, yes. Why didn't I? And that happens to us, isn't it? It's like that kind of, it just relapses. It goes. Giving yourself in marriage. This is possibly the toughest one. I know there'll be people here who've said, God, I know you are all that I need. I know that everything I need comes from you. But there's also this thing in me that I feel lonely or I I really want to share this adventure with someone else. And it's a real real sacrifice for you to say, God, I'm going to keep trusting on you. Because the, the, the temptation so often is to go outside of the camp where are the men? Where are the women to get married to? Let's go and look somewhere else. And I just want to, I really want to encourage you and say, well done. If that's you that's been making those decisions, well done. And let's think creatively about how we can get more single guys on, and women in. But, like, but it's, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough. But we want to we wanna make sure, actually, we're not going down that way because that often just leads us away from God, isn't it? And I thought this was going to be a serious one until Sharon. Amen. See, there's a fickleness, isn't there? There's a fickleness about human nature. There's a fickleness about us. And we can make that decision, and in that moment, it's real. I'm not messing with that kind of commitment. That's a real commitment. But actually, life just loves to drag us away from it as well. So add our fickle nature to cultural creep and cultural pressures. I just want to talk about Tobias, Tobiah, Tobiah and Sambalat for a moment. Because they're constantly, constantly trying to get into this story. They're constantly looking to ruin and sabotage the work of Nehemiah. They're constantly looking to undermine the purposes of God. And they try every trick in the book. Let's have a look at them. They mock. Look at that wall. If a fox jumped on it, it's going to fall down. There's no point carrying on that work. They threaten. If you don't stop what you're doing, we're going to go and talk to King Artaxerxes and say you're, you're planning an uprising. We're going to go and talk to the government about what you're up to. They infiltrate. Tobias gets into a house in Jerusalem. And then when he gets into that house in Jerusalem, and he shouldn't have been there, but he's like, oh, there's lots of stuff in this house. There's lots of stuff. It wasn't a house. It was a storeroom. There's lots of stuff in this storeroom. I need to get rid of that. 
to get rid of all that stuff and I need to bring my stuff in. And then they lead astray. Sam Ballot takes one of the Jewish girls as his wife and leads her. He says, come on, come with me. You can worship your God and we'll worship my God as well. And isn't that what the culture constantly seeks to do to the church? They mock, they mock the church. How can you worship God? How can you build like that? What kind of thing are you trying to do that? Or they threaten. You better stop saying those things else we're going to get the government involved in what, in what you're doing. Or they infiltrate. They say, listen, the church is good. Let's, br- you know, let's bring that in, but let's get rid of some of these things. Let's get rid of some of that stuff and let me bring in some of the other stuff. And then they lead astray. They come in and they say, come on, you can worship your God and I'll worship my God and we'll run away together. That's what the culture does. You see, the culture that God seeks to develop among his people will always look different to the culture around us. That's what Hannah Kelly was talking about when she was up here. She was saying, you know, when God looks at this, he sees like a garden of Eden. You know, all around us is is just grey, and then there's this garden of Eden. There's this beauty, there's this life, and it's going to permeate and go through the streets. Yeah, and that's, that's what our culture should be like. It should be different. And people will always be attracted and, uh, and repelled by it in equal measure. People want to be a part of it, and also people want it to finish in equal measure. It's an odd thing. So we've got to be careful of our flippancy, and we've got to be careful of cultural creep that tries to come and change what the church is all about. And sometimes we need a Nehemiah to come and wake us up from our sleepwalking. And boy, does he wake them up, doesn't he? <laughs> Pulling out the person's hair, crazy. But Jesus does something similar when he goes into the temple, doesn't he? He sees them all kind of working on, and, and, and selling goods and stuff, and he flips the tables up. It's like, man, Jesus, are you serious? Are you allowed to do that kind of thing? Or Paul goes to the... The, 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 uh, in, in Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why was, why was he saying that? Because they, they, Paul was saying the Galatians were letting other cultures come in and change the way Jesus had made things to be, change the way the Spirit was calling the church to behave. And so there, sometimes we need someone to come in and say, what you're doing is not good. Wake up. I promise I won't pull anyone's hair. But sometimes we need people, and just to say, it wasn't one of the, it wasn't one of the leaders, it was, Nehemiah was coming from outside. Sometimes it's not going to be the leaders that wake us up. Sometimes it's going to be someone looking from the outside and saying, what on earth are you doing? Because what you're building there doesn't look anything like what I see God call us to, to build. And that's an important thing to be able to hear that. And to be fair, they do hear it as well. So, well done to them. Some people say that the point of Nehemiah is to show however hard you work to help people become holy, in the end, they're human beings and they're full. Some people say that that's the kind of point. It's going to end in frustration. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So some people would look at Nehemiah and say, listen, he was a great man. It's hard to fault him. Maybe he got a bit angry and tetchy at the end with the pulling of the hair and stuff. 
But it's hard to fault him as you look at it. Most, most kind of Bible heroes, you look and you say, well, there's a flaw in their character. There's a flaw in their ca- character. But Nehemiah was a very good example of a person, a man after God's heart, and even he failed. But the book of Nehemiah is not about the success or the failure of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is not about the faithfulness or faithlessness of the people of God. The book of Nehemiah is a book about God's faithfulness to his people. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness to his people. So you look at Abraham, he's given a promise. Abraham, sometimes he's faithful, sometimes he's not. He's hit and miss. But God is faithful to the promise that he gives Abraham. You look at Moses. Moses was called to bring the people out of Egypt, out of slavery and into the promised land. He's all about salvation. And, and, and yet he got frustrated because of the fickleness of the people he was leading. And in the end, he missed out on going into the promised land because he got so frustrated that he kind of he did something that God told him not to do. And God said, well, you're not going in then. But God was still faithful to the promise. King David, King David, he, you know, king, on, on your throne, there'll be a king forever. Now, David was fickle. Sometimes he put his trust in God. Sometimes he was like, no, no, I've got to sort the problem out myself. And, and he messed up. But God continued to be faithful to him. And Nehemiah is all about restoration. And at the end, he says about four times, remember me. I tried. <laughs> I tried my best, God. At least remember I tried. And so at the end of Nehemiah, the curtain closes on the story of the Old Testament. And we have a 400-year interval. You can go and buy some haagen <laughs> Buy yourself some raffle tickets, see if you want anything nice. And next week, we're going to be celebrating, beginning to celebrate Advent, the beginning of the second act. And in this part of the story, God, who remained faithful to us, despite our fickleness, steps onto the stage. God becomes human and lives among us. We prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus. So next week, Claire Paulson is going to look at, at 1 John, uh, the coming of Christ from like a cosmic perspective, from that kind of, wow, here he comes kind of perspective. The following week, the Bible school team is going to be a bit different. I don't know how they're going to do it, but the Bible school team are going to come and talk um, from Luke chapter 1, which is basically the coming of Christ from a human perspective. So I'm excited about that. That's going to be very good. I'm just having a look. I'm deciding what I'm going to do now. Okay, let me just finish by saying this. Okay, Nehemiah teaches us, if anything, if the Old Testament teaches us anything, it's that we don't just need a great leader, it's that we need a great Messiah. We need a saviour. We need someone who can fill us with hope and that can deliver us from sin. We need someone who can be the king of our hearts and just grab us and arrest us 
every day of our lives. And as we leave today, I want to encourage us to do two things. One, I want you to spend some time thinking about Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Maybe if you've got a connect group this week, you could spend some time just chatting about that. What does Sabbath mean? How does it, how does it affect your life? I was, uh, because I think Sabbath is so important. So I was with Philip and Patricia on Friday, and they were telling me about this kind of, it was a bit of, I think you'd describe it as a revival that happened in the early 80s in um, uh, which, which part of Nigeria? In the student groups. And so Philip was saying they, um, the, a group of the leaders there spent about um, 12 days praying and fasting that God would move. And at the end of it, God really did move. And Philip would say, he looks back on that and thinks, man, nothing can take that away from me. Nothing, you know, I remember what God did in those days. It was a bit like that kind of moment where they make their commitments to God. Nothing can take that away. But that doesn't negate the fact that I need regularly to spend time in the presence of God. I need to have Sabbath because else my life just kind of goes off that way. And so that, that, that commitment is an important part of my history, an important moment in my life. And yet Sabbath is what keeps my life going on track with God. Um, it says, uh, Mark Driscoll, I don't agree with everything he says and does, but I like this quote. It says, On the Sabbath day, we, re- we are remembering that my relationship with God did not begin with what I've done. It is not sustained by what I do, and it is not guaranteed to the end by my effort or work. I'm saved from beginning to end by Jesus and by his work. And that's what Sabbath is. And there'll be some people, this is a risky thing to say, and I've got to finish now. This is a risky thing to say. Sometimes church life can get confused with Sabbath. So you think, okay, I work during the week and then I do my church stuff, and that's Sabbath. It's not. You might have to thin out some of areas of life, including potentially where you're serving in church. But if you're not resting in God, if you're not finding that time, to, to kind of commune with him on a regular basis, you're going to burn out. And so you need to make sure that that Sabbath is con- constantly happening in your life. So talk about that. Um, finally, cultural creep. Where's it? I've lost my thing, sorry. Um, spending time to think about cultural creep. What is good? What is godly? what is damaging in your life at the moment? What things would someone come in and say, you know, why is that in your life? Why is that? In, you need to get rid of that. Maybe you've got some Sam Ballot situations going on and you need to say, no, that stuff is not healthy and I need to take it out. Yeah? Nehemiah was savage <laughs> with his getting out of the bad stuff and making sure the good stuff goes back in. Maybe you need to be savage with what's going on in your life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that everything uh, that brings us hope is found in you. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that this story tells us about your faithful to to us despite our fickleness. 
Lord, and I thank you, Lord, for, for those of us that have put our trust in you, that have said, no, we're going to give our lives, everything we have to you. I thank you, Lord. We meant that on that day, and we want to say, Lord, we mean that. We want to give everything we have to you. But help us, Lord. We need that constant Sabbath, that constant resting in you. And so help us be wise, Lord, by your Spirit. Give us, uh, help us with one another to challenge one another and make sure actually we are spending time in your presence. And Lord, I pray, keep us from cultural creep. Lord, let us be protective of the things you've put in our hearts that you call us to do. And let us be very uh, strong in saying, I'm not allowing those things of the world to kind of encroach into what God's got for me. I pray, Lord, as a, as a church, we would be like that beacon, like that shining light, like that Eden in this area. Let us be different to all of those cultures around us. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.